Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ethnographic Marginalia, a special series on the New Books Network. I'm Sneha Navarapu. And I'm Alex Diamond. And we are the hosts of this special series. Ethnographic Marginalia brings together a set of conversations around ethnographic practice. In each episode, we will converse with an ethnographer about their research design, process, and fieldwork experiences. This special series centers the dilemmas, tribulations, mistakes, and pleasures that go into doing ethnographic research. We hope to use the conversations that transpire on this podcast as an opportunity to build community amongst ethnographers in various disciplines. Towards this end, we also have a website where we publish field notes, ethnographic essays, photo essays, and methodological reflections. Please visit our website, Ethnographic Marginalia, at www.ethnomarginalia.com to know more about how you can publish with us. We really look forward to hearing from you. Before we proceed with this episode, we'd also like to thank our sponsors, the Ethnography Incubator at the University of Chicago and the Lozano Long Institute for Latin American Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. And on that note, let's begin. It's my pleasure to welcome Angie Lederach, Assistant Professor of Peace Studies at Chapman University, to talk about her wonderful new book, Feel the Grass Grow, Ecologies of Slow Peace in Colombia, from Stanford University Press. In the context of a 2016 peace agreement between the Colombian government and the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, the book traces the far less visible aspects of moving from war to peace. The decades of Campesino's struggle to defend life, land, and territory prior to the National Accord, as well as Campesino social leaders' engagement with the challenges of the state's post-accord reconstruction efforts. Drawing on nearly a decade of extensive ethnographic and participatory research, Feel the Grass Grow advances a theory of slow peace. Flowing down does not negate the urgency that animates the defense of territory in the context of the interlocking processes of political and environmental violence that proceed, that persist in post-accord Colombia. Instead, the book shows how the campesino call to slowness recenters grassroots practices of peace grounded in multi-generational struggles for territorial liberation. The call to slow peace gives primacy to the everyday where relationships are deepened, ancestral memories reclaimed, and ecologies regenerated. Uh, Angie, welcome to the podcast. Uh, and first of all, congratulations uh, on a very interesting and very engagingly written book. Thanks so much, Alex. It's such a pleasure to, to be in conversation with you and to be invited onto the podcast. The pleasure is all mine. Um, so this is kind of normal for us with with ethnographers. We like to begin by asking them how they became ethnographers, uh, which is usually an interesting story. But your case is particularly so, and you you sort of leave some some little clues without going into them in the introduction. Um, I think where you mention a childhood experience in Costa Rica. Uh, where your family received death threats um, and you even became the target of a failed kidnapping, uh, both of which seem to have to do with U.S. influence around attempts to dismantle uh, the Sandinista government in Nicaragua, um, kind of U.S. intervention that's not that far from the Colombian experience, in fact. Um, So obviously I read this and I wanted to know more. Um, But even beyond that story, can you talk about 
your personal journey that led you to, to doing this wonderful ethnographic research uh, in Montes de Maria, Colombia. Yeah, um, thanks for kind of bringing that to the fore and, and inviting me into this question of positionality. You know, what are those relational ties and those biographical experiences that lead us to the kinds of questions um, that we have or that I have? At least for me, it's certainly been shaped by lived experiences. And so rather than negate that or try to like push that under the table, I just wanted to allow readers to um, mm -hmm. kind of have a sense of where I was coming from. So my, my parents were accompanying exiled uh, indigenous Mesquito elders um, who had been exiled from Nicaragua and who were in the process of uh, advocating for restitution of land uh, along the coast. Um, and so they didn't necessarily fall neatly into like the classical sort of Sandinista or Contra categories. But what became threatening uh, to the U.S. and to the Contras uh, about my parents' work was a possible negotiation between the Sandinistas and the Mosquito indigenous elders um, that would then provide more resources, supposedly allocate more resources for the Sandinistas to focus their efforts. Um, and, and it became, I think, enough of a threat that my father, who was working on kind of mediating between uh, Mesquito indigenous elders and leaders and uh, the Sandinista government started to receive death threats. And we soon realized that our phone had been tapped. Um, we received a, a tip off from a kind of friend of the family um, that they they actually said, I'm so, I'm so sorry that your daughter has been kidnapped because they thought it had happened. And that's how oh. um, my parents kind of realized that there were direct plans in place and later learned um, that it was orchestrated and backed by the CIA. Um, so, so this, you know, and we fled and we had this luxury and this privilege of fleeing. So there is a question of a kind of unevenness of experience in the face of state violence, um, but also this really direct and lived experience of, of state violence that on the one hand revealed to me, you know, how threatening peace <laughs> or different um, have grassroots processes and efforts of peace could be to elite power structures, um, which didn't fall neatly into these sort of tropes of peace as being either kind of a pacifying influence or uh, just an ideal, you know, it really kind of raised this question of peace as a kind of struggle lived amidst really complex realities. Um, but also the kind of unevenness of experiences of, of state-backed violence, wider impunity. So my parents mm -hmm. kept quiet about uh, what had happened for many years because they were worried about other people who remained in both Costa Rica and Nicaragua and didn't want to interrupt um, the work and efforts that they were engaged in. So you had, you know, as part of uh, an experience that I don't fully remember, I was too young to remember, but that really shaped different ways, the stories I tell about myself, how I understand my family history, the communities we've been part of, um, that I think have become really central to research inquiry. Um, and that 
offer, and this is, I think, where ethnography comes in, a more complex set of questions um, about the workings of, uh, you know, state power or state violence, but also the use of proxies. Um, this sort of question of peace is not as not so simple to define mm -hmm. uh, and to understand, and what the struggle for peace looks like in in kind of a grounded context. Um, you. Before even becoming an ethnographer, you you worked in peace building, right? Or maybe you were doing ethnography at the same time. But um, maybe before doing a, a PhD, you you worked in peace building uh, in many different contexts around the world. Is that right? That is right. Yeah, and I think that that. So I would the the first entree into sort of international peace building as kind of a formal field for me took a gap year after my sophomore year of college um, and lived in the Philippines for a year and I worked with a grassroots peace building organization um, and I really started to feel some of those tensions of, you know, at this point, there's the uh, kind of wider discourse of localizing peace building efforts or the turn to the local within within those efforts. And then uh, the reality of what that looked like, which continued to be quite patronizing and guided by funding demands or funding threads that small organizations like the one I was working for were constantly trying to squeeze themselves into. And so that left a lot of questions about, you know, what is this field that as a child, my so my father, John Paul, has kind of worked in the field for a long time as both a practitioner and a scholar and, and often at the grassroots level. So my introduction at an early age was really to activists in contexts of acute and ongoing violence um, who were really dedicated to repairing relations in their communities um, and being able to witness from a young age what often people and it wrote off as impossible, <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. actually taking place, maybe not in a perfect way, but in really substantial ways. Um, but then kind of, you know, really uh, coming up against what the formal structures and political economy uh, and, and kind of power imbalances felt like um, as a 20-year-old uh you know, fresh-eyed, um, trying to engage in, in the work, but but recognizing these real contradictions within a field that purports to, you know, work towards transformative processes of not just peace, but, but peace rooted in justice that was continually, continuously kind of uh, deepening um, really profound forms of inequalities. And at what point? Um, and and yeah, it. Go ahead, go ahead, Alex. Oh, sorry. No, I, I was. I wanted to ask, like, at what point you you sort of shifted from practitioner to wanting to to study and write about peace building. Yeah, and I think I think it was really those questions, and I of you know, how do we understand this wider discourse of the local turn in peace studies and what does that look like on the ground and how my kind of closer attention to that grounded practice um, 
add to a challenge uh, or kind of open new pathways for thinking about this commitment to uh, local communities as necessary for sustaining peace. And that's really, for me, ethnography came into play. I read my first ethnography when I returned from the Philippines is um, a different kind of war story by Carolyn Nordstrom. Wonderful and, book. Yeah. And I was uh, returning to start at Notre Dame. And so in the anthropology department and Carolyn was there at the time. And I remember just being so moved by the complexities that she drew out um, in that book, by the way that people's love for one another, um, their relationships, uh, their their possibility, you know, that potential of caring and forming caring communities in the midst of ongoing violence really spoke to experiences that I had had and seen, but didn't see reflected in wider literature, even in kind of practice documents that tended to focus on just the experiences of social suffering, which then leaves out all of these resources to build on from peace. And so ethnography for me allowed for two things, really careful attention um, to specific contexts in everyday life. Um, the possibility of bringing story forward. Uh, so, so the narrative dimensions of ethnography um, having spent time in places where oral history and storytelling isn't just a kind of like literary device, but it's actually a form of social analysis and knowledge production. And so having this set of practices that values that was really important. Um, and, and the third piece was not, you know, ethnography doesn't try to resolve these really mm -hmm. complex gray areas. It tries to lift them out so that we can really engage deeply with them. Um, and that is really hard for like policy reports or, you know, when you're trying to have right. some influence around practice, but I think it's so deeply needed in the field of peace building, especially. Um, so those were, those were the things that really drew me into ethnography and specifically um, the discipline of of anthropology, but also always with peace studies, a kind of I'm I'm much happier if I'm in interdisciplinary conversation and um, have a lot of kind of curiosity around how different ways of of knowing or producing knowledge fill in different gaps because I don't think there's only one way, right? So I'm very happy in anthropology as mm -hmm. long as also in in conversation with disciplines outside. Um, well, wonderful answer to your question. <laughs> no, no, it's it's fascinating and it's a, a great argument for ethnography. And it um having just read the book, it, it matches really well. I mean, when you talk about storytelling and the, the value of storytelling as social theory for campesino communities, that really comes out in the book. And conversely, when you talk about ethnography as a way of producing knowledge that's different from the kinds of um, maybe measurables that agencies that are intervening have to have to produce. Um, that's that's also something that, that you critique in in talking about the photos and signatures that state agencies are producing. Um, we can get into that. Uh -huh. um, I'm getting ahead of myself. I, I did want to ask how how you began working uh, in Colombia and then also sort of the 
the, the social ties that led you to Montes de Maria and how you entered the community? Yeah, yeah, thanks for those questions. So when my family was living in, in Costa Rica, we were part of a wider kind of transnational um, network that in, included a kind of across Latin America and, and elsewhere. Um, at the time, that included an, a number of organizations and individuals in Colombia, one of whom is Ricardo Esquivia, who I've known for uh, essentially my whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we returned to Virginia, it was only really a few years later that Ricardo was uh, forcibly displaced as a result of military-backed violence and, th- and threats. Um, and fled to the United States for a time uh, where he lived near us. So he's been kind of part of my life and also formation, my political formation, my understanding of the work of peace, Mm -hmm. my desire to be part of that work for a long time. Uh, And he is the director of Sembrando Paz, which was my entry point. I started my PhD research in Montes de Maria in 20. 13. I had my first conversation with Ricardo about it in 2010, um, just sort of feeling through whether research was something that, you know, would there be a, a space for this as part of the work of Sembrando Paz? Is there a role for this kind of research, these kinds of questions that I had at the time, which centered around you know, um, how people were engaged in building peace in the midst of war. Uh, For me, really wanting to show that this isn't something that happens after an accord is signed, but it's ongoing. um, So to disrupt some of those linear accounts uh, and also that tension between international mechanisms and and local um, grassroots uh, organizations. and I was skeptical about research uh, at the time as well, but also had really strong questions. <laughs> and Ricardo um, is always so welcoming that you know if someone has an interest and that interest is aligning with the work, then yes, of course you ought to be coming because that's another yet another opportunity. Um, and so it was, a, a, of course, kind of in that spirit, welcomed me. Um, and I also, around this time, started working with Rosa Jimenez, who has uh, who, you know, tragically passed away a number of years ago from an accident, um, was one of the first people to invite me to Montes de Maria along with Ricardo. And she ran the Participatory Action uh, Research Center at the University of Cartagena, Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just in, in, so in 2010, I believe I, I went to Cartagena for the first time, um, and was just blown away actually by the conference because it was an academic conference at a university that was almost entirely attended and, um, and led by women from really grassroots, uh, communities and, and movements along the coast. And so it made me realize that a different kind of academia was possible and that people were working Mm -hmm. towards building that kind of community. So those were my two really strong ties. And I started research then in in 2013. I started with Sembrando Paz. Um, 
but in part because Sembrando Paz has this very strong kind of ethos of accompaniment, <laughs> which includes mm-hmm. anybody who comes into their orbit, you know, they also wanted to accompany me in the questions that I had. And they mm-hmm. did that in really profound ways. Um, the book is dedicated to them in part because of that. Um, Which it shows. I mean, you're very, uh, <laughs> and Ricardo is a, a central figure in the book and a lot of the a lot of the theorizing you do sort of comes out of those collaborations and um you, know, you explicitly give credit um maybe that actually can even give us a a good transition to talking about that research um and what it means to do a participatory project uh that's even designed collaboratively um you worked with Sembrando Paz uh, in the territory, a, a youth group as well. I think you work very closely with, and you write about a lot. Um, also, the espacios regionales or the espacio regional. Yeah. Um, so yeah, what what does that look like? But actually, maybe first we can go back a little bit because the the first empirical chapter of the book talks about the history of participatory action research, which has come to the U.S. Um, but he's actually from not only Colombia, but but kind of very directly from the area that you research, which I had not known. Um, yeah. And and comes out of political struggle, right? It doesn't, uh, which I was my sort of takeaway from from that chapter that I found fascinating. So, what is participatory action research, um, first of all, and how yeah. did it come about in Montes de Maria? Yeah, and maybe I'll start with the second part of the question. It came about in the 70s with the Campesino movement, the the ANUC, um, which was one of the largest social movements in in Colombian history. And it was, it emerged really as part of that struggle for um, agrarian reform and for political participation. So not just focused on questions of of land tenure, but also political participation in terms of decision-making structures um, and and their transformation. Um, And it was a combination of the the work of sociologist Orlando Falls Borda and Victor Negrete, who were, Victor is uh, from Cordoba, still there. Orlando Falls Borda is, is from the coast and returned. Um, to Montes de Maria in in part uh, because of of Anouk and interest in working with Anouk. Um, And it was really thinking about how research might be placed at the service of movement building. How do you use research as a tool um, and and resource for really building different kinds of, of power, for organizing, for reflecting on political action um, and for driving social change in collaboration with other kinds of practices. So not seeing research as separate from movement building or even just a reflection on movement building, but as an an integral part of that organizing work. Uh, And so Joanne Rappaport is kind of really nicely in in Cowards Don't Make History. She's done a really deep dive into the, the emergence and challenges and changes within participatory action research in Colombia. Um, but she talks about participation. So, you know, participatory, where expertise and knowledge as is kind of understood as lived through experiences and then shared collectively uh, as part of the research process. 
It also included critical recovery. Um, so that historical retrieval of other kinds of traditions uh, for past forms of action. So for Campesino communities, this was a really important um, form of reaffirming their own histories and forms of action and forms of knowledge production um, that were not taught necessarily in schools or accessible in their communities. Um, and to learn from those. And then part of participatory action research isn't just the research itself. It's not just collaborating to do the research or to engage in this critical retrieval, but actually uh, to kind of report back materials. So Joanne talks about this in terms of systematic devolution of those materials and that that is intended for engagement and reflection. And so in its early phases, this often were conversatorios or dialogue sessions of, with the community and with movement leaders where researchers would bring material from oral life histories, so from kind of past iterations of political action uh, that they had learned through oral history or from documentation of current political actions, and then open a space for dialogue about that material that was intended to provide a kind of praxis, so a reflection uh, a collective reflection on action to refine um, the work that the movement was doing, to identify strengths, to think about continued forms of, of connection or political action that could move some of those wider aims of transformation forward. I think one of the challenges with participatory action research, I similarly you know, came into the PhD program and already had like these relationships with Rosa and Ricardo, and was like, I'm going to do participatory action research. And it wasn't really until I got to, like, started really talking to people in Montes de Maria, um, who were part of some of these, these movements that, that you mentioned that I work with, that I realized the depth of history, like that the hmm. methodology had emerged uh, from that place and from that movement. There, I should also say, you know, there are other origin stories of collaborative research methods that kind of fall under this umbrella. So this is one origin story. I don't want to say it's the only one, um, but it, it did have a really tremendous influence. And Orlando Falls Borda in particular was engaging in spaces outside of the Caribbean region, really pushing uh, right. for a different way of doing social science. Um, and so, and so it, it has connections to what we know now, but the history has been lost. So that's kind of critical recovery just of the history itself is important in the work that I do. It's not been lost. It's in, it's in your book. Yeah. <laughs> so what, so what does this look like? Like in, in practical terms, I mean, you, I, you go into it in the book a little bit, but, uh, it sounds like it begins with, uh, like a co-constructed research design from the very start. Um, what did that process look like? And then, you know, working as an ethnographer under under this methodology, like on a day to day basis, what what does that what does that mean? Yeah, I so I entered and Sembrando Paz was accompanying a number of different social processes. So I'll just name them first. Um, the peaceful process of reconciliation and integration of the Alta Montaña. So I'll shorten that to peaceful process has as part of that campesino movement in the high region of, of this territory, a youth wing, which is the youth peace provokers. So they're 
part. It's an intergenerational movement. Um, and so through Sembrando Paz, I was introduced to that movement. They seem to have interest prior to my arrival and having uh, a researcher have participate with them and the work that they were doing at the time, specifically around advocating for collective reparations. And then both Sembrando Paz and the peaceful process and the youth peace provokers participate in this broader coalition that brings together hundreds of really grassroots social processes is the term um, in Spanish, but we might think of that in terms of community organizations or mm -hmm social movements uh, from Montes de Maria with this kind of shared collective aim of peace that is tied to sort of uh, identifying um, a shared platform for what that means in the territory. Uh, so it's very much grassroots based, but they do also include kind of allies from outside organizations, researchers, university workers, uh, state um, people who represent state agencies who participate not in representation of those agencies, but um, as a sort of allies or connecting points in that coalition. Um, so I started by just sort of presenting some of the research questions I had and whether there was interest to follow those and also inviting what sorts of research questions they would find useful and how they would find any sort of materials produced from from research useful to their work. Um, so, you know, in the very first meeting, um, one of the leaders of the peaceful process was like, yes, we want you to do a documentary. And I probably should have called you, Alex, because I do not, like, I don't do anything with film. Like, documentary felt very far-fetched. I was like, well, I guess we'll see if this... Um, you know, if we move forward. So I had to learn to be a little bit more clear about like, here are the sets of things that I can do and where I see research maybe supporting your work. What might you see within you know, this rubric of like writing uh, in different genres, certainly, but also um, sharing uh, the knowledge that they had built of the work towards peace that they had been engaged in in their communities. And so I think in part the orienting question about which which focused really on peace and less on the violence that they had endured, um, I think was the space that really opened up that collaboration. And I would say right up front, you know, they um, identified, like, don't treat the youth as separate from us. We are interested in thinking about what intergenerational action looks like. Uh, so I had been framing questions sort of in discrete categories, and they pushed back on the way that I was doing that in ways that were so fruitful <laughs> to the research process itself. Um, so I think, you know, sometimes people critics of uh, participatory action research might say like you're too guided by the desires of uh, a local community and it leads all to all of these blank spots um, or gaps in the research and I would say to that you know any project is is limited and has mm -hmm. its limits and its framework um, and is incomplete um, in the sense of like that full, getting that full huge picture. 
But what participatory action research affords is a kind of peer review and collaboration throughout that opens really different avenues um, for research questions, for exploration. I mean, so even just that question of shift from youth to intergenerational was a research mm-hmm. question. You know, well, what does that so what does that mean? And how are they experiencing this through like clearly this was an experience of different kinds of interventions or interfaces that they were having where that wasn't being recognized. So it opened up a whole um, area that I wasn't uh, necessarily coming in with. And the second piece was environment. (laughs) You know, like the subtitle of the book is ecologies of slow peace. Environmental dimensions are uh, play a huge part. And I was thinking about land, certainly, in mm-hmm. terms of uh, natural resources, and but I was framing it really um, in Western terms and under Western kind of influenced by Western environmentalist frameworks that uh, really didn't include the sorts of relationality and multi-species um, solidarity and relations that were broken that existed and that were central to the work of of peace and also central to the experience of violence that people had in this region. So I want to ask about that. I actually have like seven follow-up questions because you're saying a lot of very interesting things. But um before we before we move on from from talking explicitly about uh, participatory action research, uh does this mean that like on a day-to-day basis within your research you were traveling around the, I mean you write about some of this. So I know that at least to some extent it does, but you're you're accompanying um, you know members of the the youth peace provokers or sembrando paz or yeah what what does that what does doing participatory uh, action research look like on a in your experience on like a daily yeah. basis? I think so. Big picture for me on a daily basis, it was always the question of how do I put this collective process over my individual project. So what are the needs of this process? So really early on in the research, um, the youth wanted to meet with all of the bases, uh, the base kind of youth organizations that made up part of their movements. There were 13 of them, um, but had a really hard time being able to do that. And so we developed a focus group interview process. So basically what the youth wanted was to understand how their kind of base organizations were working, what wasn't working, how they understood as the peace accords were unfolding, you know, the implications of peace accords for their work or not, and how they were involved, like how they felt involved, like their participation within the movement. And so we worked together to create kind of a focus group session around that. That wasn't necessarily like what I put in my grant applications (laughs) for the research that emerged. In the process, it seemed right. like a space where research made a lot of sense, like I gained a lot from those mm-hmm. um, conversations, but it also tied to this wider effort that the youth were uh, working to engage. Um, and so there were experiences like that throughout. So the coalition, the Espacio Regional, um, or the regional space, you know, they really wanted somebody who could document or systematize their meetings? How could they have documentation of what Mm -hmm. they were doing over a longer period of time so that it wouldn't get lost? 
a lot of people who participate in that coalition were part of some of those early participatory action research teams. And so part of what they wanted was a space for somebody to help them do that reflection on action, because it's just a lot to be engaged in political struggle, to survive on a daily basis, <laughs> uh, to be confronting on a regular basis forms of threat, um, direct death threats, uh, which circulated at the time that I was doing my research. And you know, having that space for collective reflection or somebody who's stepping back to be able to sort of document and walk through that was actually really valuable. So that seems really basic in a lot of ways that's like ethnography <laughs> itself, but it's always doing it um, with this wider process in mind and sort of guided in that relationship. I would say that I think there were limitations in how far I was able or felt I was able to go. So a dissertation had certain requirements. The grant funding structures don't fit very nicely with a participatory mm -hmm. model. Um, so it was always sort of trying to squeeze in what I could as those opportunities arose. But I haven't done a lot of co-authorship. I have um, worked to uh, allow spaces for people to write um, kind of their own authorship. And I actually prefer that model better. There were a number of times that I tried to co-author pieces with people and I just felt like I wasn't part of the we that was being spoken in those spaces and and so shifting towards how to support actually the writing or the production of their um, own knowledge within that format of an, an article uh, or an op-ed became you know one of the ways that I engaged in a different kind of co-production of knowledge where I wasn't an, an author, but a facilitator, if, if that makes so, sense. And then I cite that work. <laughs> that's what I was going to ask because you cite it, but, <laughs> but I think you don't, you don't, and I would understand why, but you don't uh, take credit for it or uh, not, not that you should, should have taken credit for, it, but you don't talk about your own role in, in facilitating the publication of that work, right? Yeah. Yeah, and then that gets really tricky with with grants, right? Because they want to see like <laughs> where their name gets tied to something or what is coming out of that, and it's um, it's not my work, and it's not my words, and it's not my experience. And there are some really key pieces where I felt like it was really important for that authorship to not come from me or somehow be mediated by me, but I could play a facilitating role and helping people have the space you know mm -hmm. just like let me give you a stipend for the day so that you don't have to farm today so that we could work on uh drafting this because clearly you know you've been thinking and theorizing these pieces or you know let me invite you to co-facilitate um workshops at a conference with me and then let's see what emerges from from those experiences um, I will, I mean, Winter Gren has recently started a specific fund for participatory projects. Oh. And I'm really excited that some, at least granting agencies, are starting to recognize that the structure of the grants themselves need to shift to allow this kind of work to be possible. So I think that there are some limitations, um, certainly in, in how I engaged in participatory action research, but um, always thinking about the process, always thinking about, you know, how what I was producing needed to be 
part of a wider collective reflection. So I've never published anything without translating and receiving feedback first, which mm -hmm. is its own labor and cost, um, including the book. Uh, so that, and, and again, so much to my benefit because there were, um, you know, a number of pieces, the first iteration from the dissertation, Dionisio Alarcon, who's a poet and a campesino farmer, um, who is also, you know, in the book uh, quite a bit, you know, we were sitting and he had read through kind of the first pieces and he said, you know, this is good, but it's very academic. Um, <laughs> and so when I was revising the dissertation, to the book, uh, it was like a really helpful framing for me to think about how I was foregrounding the narratives in the ways that, uh, and analyses in the ways that they are produced in uh, in Montes de Maria and among campesino communities, uh, rather than like leading with the theory um, or the Western theory or leading with a traditional academic theory. Um, and so just even comments like that recognition of like my my failures <laughs> and, and he didn't I don't he didn't mean it necessarily as a huge critique it was just a comment like that the voices of campesinos or their narratives um you know, weren't as present in in how I had written the dissertation um so those were really tremendously fruitful spaces for me. So anybody who's concerned about mm -hmm. the extra labor or work, um, you know, I, I highly recommend pushing through. And, and even if it's imperfect, as many things are, um, I think trying to, to guide with that ethos of a, a process over an individual project and really like be stubborn about <laughs> partnership and collaboration is, is important. I will say not every project lends itself mm -hmm. to participatory action research um, and shouldn't. Um, and mine did for the specific groups I was working with. It's the history there. Um, and it doesn't have to collapse to a single narrative. I mean, I, I think that was the third thing that came up in the very first meeting was like, you need many voices because we all have different truths. Um, and so I think that also was very liberating for me that it wasn't, I wasn't being guided by like one or two individuals saying it needs to be only like this story or this truth. There's actually a real recognition for wanting to lift out that complexity and honor it. Um, and so the process was just very, very fruitful for theory, um, for practice, for friendship, <laughs> Uh, and I hope for movement building, hope for organizing. Yeah, no, and it's it's so interesting to think about having just read the the book, and I read the dissertation. I don't know, like three years ago or something, something like that. Um, and sort of can remember like some differences, but you know, think about ac academic disciplines, discipline, <laughs> right? And I mean, I'm coming from a sociological background, your anthropology, so there's kind of different ways that, that these disciplines discipline, but there's a lot of similarities, and particularly in a space like a dissertation, where there's all this pressure to, you know, have meet particular academic standards within like a very, you know, bounded social field where particular kinds of knowledge um, 
count and others maybe less so, or others are things you draw on to produce your own findings. Um, one thing that I that I think makes a lot of sense that I, I want to recognize in, in the context of everything you're saying is that a lot of your theorizing is very explicitly uh, based on what you call like campesino social theory um, or knowledge. Uh, a lot of it disseminated. I mean, you are actually citing published works that uh, that I now know you worked with people on, but you're also talking about like. Uh, people telling stories in in communal spaces and as like an explicit um, or in, not explicit from their perspective, but from yours as a way that like campesino social theory is developed. Um, so the sort of central thread or the central theoretical thread of the book is slow piece. Um, and can can you talk a little bit about like how this concept of slow piece came out through uh the the theorizing and the the ideas of of the people who participated the the campesino leaders that you worked with yeah yeah thanks for uh for that question i um it was really notable to me how frequent people explicitly talked about los tiempos the times <laughs> um and i don't know i think it's you know, I, I don't think it's unique to Montes de Maria, um, but I had worked previously around kind of questions of temporality and especially kind of linear, the ways that peace building program often follows a really strict linear design of you know, pre-conflict escalation, conflict, and then post-conflict and um, trying to disrupt some of the ways that that temporal structure really limited um, the the types of peace building programming that was implemented or shaped of harmful practices. So that was in kind of previous work in West Africa. I hadn't really been in spaces where people were so explicit about critiquing the times. And so that's the this, this sort of and of course, I'm alert to that because I've been working on this question, but it, it came up so regularly, you know, a, a, a really tense meeting with state agencies. And like the first thing, um, Jose Macarena, who's a, a really incredible campesino organizer, said to like turn to me and he was like, our times aren't the same. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is just not something I hear like in the context of the United States where I work. Right? <laughs> like people aren't always so explicit about how times are felt and drive programming and conflict between them. And often in the literature, not always it temporal um, dimensions or dynamics of violence are often talked about as a sort of substratum as something that's there, but it's not visible or it's not explicitly Mm -hmm. talked about. Um, And here it was like very present. And it was the first thing that a lot of people kind of turned to to say like, well, here's why we're having this big clash and we don't understand each other. Um, but slow peace started to emerge a little bit later. And it was um, a conversation I had with Maria Lucia Zapata, who um, you know, works in in, a, in the Javeriana uh, and has worked in the master's program in peace studies at the Javeriana is now uh, the director of the political science department. Um, and it was around some kind of, it was around translating 
something else. And she, I think it was, I was translating slow violence from Rob Nixon because I was starting mm -hmm. to work with that around environmental issues. And I, I couldn't figure out how to translate it. And she said, what about scene Prisa? And as soon as she said it, I was like, I have been hearing that a lot and I haven't been paying attention to it. So I went back and coded, um, like just went back to all of my field notes and to interviews. And it, you know, I think this is one of the things about ethnography and, uh, and coding, some of those kind of key terms, you might not even notice the first mm. time. And all of a sudden, it just started to merge over and over again. And I hadn't necessarily thought of it in terms of its connection to this idea of slowness, um, or even in, you know, and I don't think it's a direct mirror necessarily of slow violence, but in relation to something like the concept of, of slow violence. Um, and Prisa carries with it all of these other valences of of oppression uh, has its root in that term and so really thinking through the layers of us seeing Prisa or peace without hurry so mm -hmm. you know where it came up was you know people I had like flagged the the times you know so there there was a fairly frequent discourse around our times aren't the same or these are not our times but often following that was like, we're trying to build peace without hurry um, or haste. So passing brisa. And I felt like slowness kind of got at the different valences embedded within that. Um, and there were a number of like sessions around the slow food movement globally. I mean, it wasn't mm -hmm. as if people weren't engaging with in Montes de Maria with campesinos, you know, asking for different ways of connecting to translocal experiences uh, of thinking about food or agriculture uh, or ecology. Um, and so there were some direct connections to something like the slow food movement, um, even if they were, you know, not, uh, it, it's not the same thing, but there were these, I think, connections mm -hmm. that spoke to a wider set of realities that people were trying to identify with this discourse. So slow peace isn't um, the literal translation of Pasim Brisa, but I felt like slowness had within it all of these different dimensions, including what it means to slow down or to do things in a way that is not rushed, um, to do things without haste, it really calling to those questions of attention and intention um, that it's not that that move beyond a kind of binary of like short term and long term. So a lot of times people kind of when they hear slow piece, I think rightly tend towards, oh, this is talking about long-term change. It is that, but it's also the quality of relationships and the ways that people relate and inhabit a space that have to do with that quality of experience, the attention to place, the relationships with one another, creating space for that. And I think that there was a real, like very fruitful paradox on the one hand of a call to work for peace without hurry. And on the other hand, to feel like the crushing um, limits of this sort of perpetually delayed implementation. Mm -hmm. um, 
And I thought that that paradox when I you know, started to really write up the work was really worth exploring. So on the one hand, you have perpetually delayed forms of implementation and people's response to that is we need to build peace without haste. And so they're not saying like, this needs to move slower. Like we need implementation to move slower, become even more sluggish. They're saying something else. And I thought that was really worthwhile to explore and to think about both in terms of theory, you know, theory of um, time as as kind of a social experience um, that has real political effects, um, but also worthwhile to explore what does this mean for practice? What does this mean for peace building practice and, and for how people understand that practice? And it's tied into the research methodology too, which is, um, I think important to, and it's interesting the way you design the book too, because it's it's sort of foregrounded as, even though I'm not sure you say this explicitly, but I was thinking about it um, as a very reflexive process where you give, uh, yeah, you, you give a process time to unfold with collaboration without rushing people. I need to get this interview done or, um, and that, that seems you know, especially once once the 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 peace agreement is signed, which happens partway through your research, um, and the government begins implementing uh, the peace agreement, um, which has a participatory model, uh, but is as as you said rushed. So that that kind of rushing makes the the prisa makes participation not particularly meaningful because they're they're not taking the time to do the kind of work that um that the acompañamiento of sembrando paso that like a model of participatory action research would would call for yeah yeah it it felt necessary to me if i was going to be talking about a collective process over <laughs> over like a delimited project, right? Like that critique comes up a lot. And I already kind of came in with some recognition of of, uh, of the real harm that like three-year projects or one-year projects do, um, that the research reflect that desire, right? So I think that hopefully is, is built into the process. I will say on a daily basis, I felt this like real internal pressure. Like, I'm not doing enough. I'm not meeting these like these pieces of the research that I'm expected to meet for these other stakeholders in this process. And it was always just like coming back and trusting um, and giving primacy to something mm -hmm. that like the wider institutional structures didn't necessarily have built into them. And I think this is really what Sembrando Paz does. Um, mm -hmm. And again, not uh, always perfect and not, and Ricardo talks about this as well. Like, uh, I'm not saying we're doing this. I'm saying this is what ought to be, <laughs> but like moving towards right. that what ought to be opens up a whole different set of practices and like the rushing comes from a really you know recognizable once you look for it set of patterns and practices that are Im embedded in um not just colombian state agencies but in a kind of wider political economy that shapes international peace building and so like the need to 
have log frames and see if those log frames are met or not met. Um, the need to have X number of people at a meeting for it to count as a form of action that gets reported. You know, so mm -hmm. all of a sudden what is felt at the level of the communities who have been most profoundly affected by violence and who are at the forefront of rebuilding their communities um, is this empty uh, form of participation where it's just their signature or it's just their photo put on a banner or put on a pamphlet or you know, floated across uh, Twitter feeds that doesn't actually lead to any significant material or political changes. Um, and so slowing down entails a real shift in the kinds of practices and, and technologies built into uh, a lot of, a lot of uh, international peace building design. Absolutely. And yeah, I mean, I, as somebody who also does research in rural Colombia and and in the peace process and with uh, a number of, of agencies that have come out of the peace process that sort of that chapter and that analysis really spoke to me, which which is, you know, the, there's all these metrics, fotos y firmas, photos and signatures. This is your analysis that I'm paraphrasing, but there's all these metrics that um, that agencies have to meet that should be signifying, you know, a meaningful intervention and are sort of ways of standing in and measuring that that they're you know doing what they're supposed to be doing, which is building peace within the territory. Um, but these metrics end up becoming what they're actually producing at the expense of, um, you know, what would, would you say would just require more slowness and attention and building relationships um, and allowing for meaningful participation from community members. Instead, they're sort of shoving signature sheets at you. And in my experience, uh, sometimes multiple signature sheets at a time, not just from multiple agencies, but from meetings that happened two weeks ago and are scheduled to happen in two weeks, uh, two weeks in the future that probably aren't gonna happen, but go ahead and sign. Sign it, yeah. And, and it's that sheet that becomes, and Roxani Cristalli has um, documented this from the side of the state agencies, that it is logged as a form of action, like the attendance sheet becomes mm -hmm. the substance of that state action, um, when of course it's, it's not. And so you have this huge clash uh, happening. Um, that requires, I think, a lot of critical reflection and attention. And that I always want to say is not unique to Colombia. Right. <laughs> and it's not um, solely the responsibility of Colombian agencies um, to think about why those sheets have taken on such import um, and where that meaning or significance comes from is often tied to uh, other kinds of donor and funding streams. Absolutely. Um, well, now that we've gotten into actually talking about, uh, so you start doing research on grassroots peace building in a context where the there's actually a peace agreement being negotiated, but not implemented yet, right? And then it, at some point in your research, well, not at some point, in, in 2016, um, you actually go with uh, with social leaders to the signing of this historic peace agreement um, between the, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, uh, a guerrilla group, and the government. Um, 
So how how did your research change kind of in a before and after sense? Yeah, I feel like in some ways fundamentally and in other ways not at all, which is a very fair response. I think it just changed the frame a little bit. Like I could really focus in on what this implementation period felt like and then situate that in what had been the efforts or the focus before. So I was really interested coming in specifically of thinking about this question of what it means to build peace in the context of ongoing war, um, which we should say continues in Colombia. Absolutely. So it continues. Um, So this, but but I think what shifted was there was a, a kind of political end, a declaration of a political end of at least one part of that internal armed conflict with the FARC. Um, and that, um, on the one hand, opened this real opportunity to think about you know, what does this mean for grassroots peace efforts that had been advocating in part, of course, for a negotiated agreement, This many of these movements had been kind of really pushing for um, a process of disarmament, a process of um, a negotiated settlement. Uh, when the peace talks seemed like they were faltering, you know, organizing collective actions uh, focused on supporting those negotiations. But many of the movements saw their work as much broader um, than that peace accord. And so, um, in the aftermath of the referendum, which happened on October 2nd, so the peace accords were signed September 26th, and then there was a referendum, a plebiscite, um, that resulted in the narrow rejection of those, uh, of those, of, of the signed agreements. Um, you know, people that I was with, A, were very frightened for their lives. Death threats had been circulating um, an increasing way leading up to to that plebiscite. And so there was this real sense of uncertainty, like what does this now mean for those of us who have been advocating for peace? Um, and at the same time came back to this sort of common sentiment that peace is not signed, peace is built. Like their mm-hmm. work started before these agreements or the, even these negotiations it will continue long after. Um, not to say that the peace accords weren't important for that work, <laughs> um, but that it was only one part, an insufficient yet necessary part of, of that work in, in some ways. Um, and so thinking through the questions, both of you know, what does this peace agreement mean for people? What does it mean for their struggles for dignified life? How does its implementation either hurt or harm those struggles? Um, became a really important frame. I would say that prior to the signing of the accords, um, there were there was already transitional justice legislation and mechanisms in place under the Victims Law of 2011, and even um, right. prior to that. And so it, it's a little complicated in the book because the experience on the ground is the ways that those mechanisms or programs become have conflated or collapsing in the implementation process. And part of what happens is a deferral of some of that implementation as new Mm -hmm. agencies are being formed. 
Um, and Elizabeth Povinelli, who's a, an anthropologist, has, has kind of really written eloquently about this in the context of Australia and thinking about late liberalism and the ways that deferred action happens often through kind of changing of agencies and then responsibilities for implementation that follow that. Um, and I, I felt that very much with the collective reparations programs, and then all of a sudden being told, well, this is changing because we now have new agencies under these um, under these accords. And that you know, really led to forms of uh, resentment, um, I would say, and um, disappointment, <laughs> certainly. Mm -hmm. um, but I would also say that the peace accords, you know, they, they leave open possibilities for the expansion of certain kinds of industries that have been very violent. Um, and that was well recognized among people that I work with, but they also were a real tool for advocacy. And so I think there's this real pragmatic and very grounded <laughs> understanding of what the accords were. But disarmament was important, that it was imperfect, that there were all of these potential areas that could be incredibly harmful under the guise of peace, but there are also all of these possibilities to use this as a tool of advocacy and, and how to do that well. Um, and then finally, what I would say is I think it um, really brought to light dynamics that were already present, um, but especially like all of a sudden in in like Bogota, it became very common to hear um, colleagues and, and friends talk about how peace had all of a sudden become de moda, um, mm -hmm. like popular or trendy, I guess is, the, yeah. is a better way of saying that. Whereas in Montes de Maria, as the peace accords were signed, and then especially leading up to their rejection um, in the referendum, and then you know the revised signing happened in November, um, peace remained and in, it, at different times became even more peligrosa or dangerous. And so I think that that distinction between kind of trendy, like you're all of a sudden, all of the funds or conferences or uh, programming, whether that's academic or in NGOs needed to be framed around peace, right? That's what trendy means. So there was this kind of funding component to that. Whereas like in a place um, that's been prioritized for the Accords because of longstanding effects of the armed conflict in, in that region, it peace became a really dangerous endeavor. And it had always been a dangerous endeavor, but in a lot of ways, some of that uncertainty increased at different moments to be a public advocate of peace carried quite a lot of risk with it. Um, and so I think in the research, just exposing what that then means and uh, trying mm -hmm. to understand why that is or what that experience feels like became um, really important. So in some ways, some of the guiding questions stayed the guiding questions, you know, mm -hmm. not signed, it's built, our work, you know, started long before, will continue long after. So it hasn't changed in other ways, the frame of the work really, really shifted. Well, I appreciate that that you and also the the social leaders you're quoting are uh, advancing 
you know, aside from this sort of discrete, okay, peace was signed in 2016. Now we're in post-conflict. You write about peace as a process and, and the, well, you just said this, but the, the, you, the people you're you're quoting are talking the you know the people who've been engaged in grassroots peace building are talking about struggles that date back you know centuries that are involving um, yes overcoming violence but also um, you know economic rights and ending all kinds of exploitation slavery even um, and I think that's like a really powerful and important vision that that sort of gets us away from this depoliticized well you know this 2016 now we have a, a peace agreement and let's go about implementing that yeah and that's really jose macarino talked about before when i interviewed him later to ask him right so you have the field notes where you, where i was like hearing frequently this idea of the times but when i asked him specifically like what he means when he talks about the times, he starts with <laughs> slavery and colonialism and mm-hmm. understanding interventions in the territory starting from that point, including, you know, interventions from the international community under the guise of peace and development at different at different iterations at different points. And so it's a different set of times, right? There's a different kind of temporal dimension. Um, to even approaching what or what the when of right. peace, which shifts the how. Absolutely. Okay. Well, I want to be respectful of your time, Angie, but I want to I want to end with just sort of one, um, I guess, fun question. Mm-hmm. Um, we've spent a, we've spent a long time now talking about the book. I want to talk about what's not in the book. Yeah. Um, so as writers, often there's, uh, as ethnographers too, we often have these stories that are great, that are fascinating, that they're for whatever reason we love, but have to cut out. Yeah. So I want to ask you that. What's what's like the most interesting story that, that ended up on the cutting room floor um, that yeah. you are now going to share with our listeners? <laughs> I love that question. And it was like immediate in terms of what comes to mind. Um, which is the story of the burro moribundo, the dying donkey. Uh, I had a very eccentric roommate who shared part of this house, which was the Sembrando Paz house in El Carmen, um, that also served as kind of a base for movement leaders when they were mm-hmm. coming in and out of the urban center. And she found uh, a donkey that was very injured on the street and felt like she needed to bring it home. And so we had this donkey in the middle of, you know, El Carmen is in a rural area, but it's a city. Um, so in our patio and the vet came and cost a bunch of money and eventually the donkey died and we didn't know what to do with it because we were not living like a <laughs> And it died the morning of uh, a major meeting with the victims unit around collective reparations. So a bunch of social leaders from the Montaña had come down um, early and had to figure out what to do with those of us who were not campesinos, who now had a dead donkey in our patio. And so we spent the morning like shoving it into this bag, figuring out how to get it into this um, sack and taking it away. And there was this sort of like procession that I remember very, very clearly 
um, we're like <laughs> campesino leaders had this donkey and we were sort of having lamentations around the death of this donkey and the vet came to check in on it, but people felt like the vet had sort of um, made a pretty penny on an uh, kind of inevitable outcome. And so I remember a, a couple of the youth pretending to interview this vet about his practices. <laughs> um, and it became this living story that we often still talk about um, that, you know, is part of also this echando cuentos, tossing stories or telling mm -hmm. stories that they take on a life of their own. And people often say, hey, when are you going to write about uh you know, the, the dying donkey, and it has not yet made it into my work. But when you ask the question, it is the one that comes up. It was funny. And it also, um, you know, reflected a set of uh, practices and kind of material practices and knowledge um, that really exposed those of us urban dwellers, like our gap of, of knowledge and even what it means to take in a dying donkey and having the capacity to care for it, the amount of money you're willing to spend on it. All of these things, you know, part of what I try to talk about in the book, coming back to the book here, um, mm -hmm. is the way that campesino knowledge is not just erased, it's often degraded. And mm -hmm. so that retrieval becomes really important um, in kind of affirming <laughs> this like deep set of place-based knowledge, of farming knowledge, of caretaking of different species, um, and to kind of counter those narratives that are very violent, are forms of epistemic violence. Um, but also that then produce or generate other forms of, of violence. Um, and I thought this was one way where, you know, they could really tease us. It was a, you know, the story circulates right. because it's an affirmation of campesino knowledge and the ways that um, that knowledge is grounded in in place and in relationships that aren't often part of urban landscapes, like the one that we were inhabiting. Um and it was also very funny, you know, it was like a communal, we have to get rid of this donkey before the victim's unit arrives. Like we need the patio looking clean. We can't just be <laughs> sitting here with like a donkey that's starting to smell. So that's my story. Uh, awesome. No, that's, that's a wonderful story. Um, it's, it sounds like a biblical parable. <laughs> the, 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 the dying donkey. Yeah. Um, well, Angie, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, I thought this was a fascinating conversation, um, and I, I think it'll be really inspiring to to people who may want to, you know, think about actually implementing similar kinds of research, um, or who are just interested in learning about Colombia or peace building or uh, campesino activism um, or just good ethnography. Um, so the book is "Feel the Grass Grow." Ecologies of Slow Peace in Colombia. Thank you so much, Alex. Thank you for your thoughtful questions and for the opportunity to talk. <laughs> Thank you, Angie.